it is the first Sunday of the year, and we are going as a church. This will start our seventh year of ministry as a church. Our church was founded February 2017 by about four original families, and seven years for a church is kind of a big deal. It's a milestone year. I'm going to take a sabbatical this year, which is a fancy term for some time off uh, at the end of the year, beginning of next year. Um, it's a milestone re- re- year for a lot of reasons. Any, anybody would tell you that that seventh year is a big deal. That's why they want the lead pastor to take some time off, get rested up for the next seven years. Um, and when I look back at the history of our church, we have certainly beat the odds when it comes to planting a church. I don't know if you know the statistics, but 80% of church plants fail in the first five years. I'm not sure if I shared that statistic with the four original families that helped me do this thing, but that has definitely always been the statistic, and I've always known about it. Uh, The latest statistics in 2022, maybe you don't know this because you don't follow international church statistics like I do, but you need to know that in the year 2022, only 8% of churches will have over 250 people in attendance on a Sunday, and we do that several times a year. So wilderness is considered, and it doesn't feel like that. This doesn't feel like a huge megachurch, and we're not that, but wilderness in, in terms of statistic international stuff, we're considered a very large church. And I, as the pastor of this church, feel very optimistic about the future. In fact, when I talk to other pastors, I kind of have a hard time. I have a hard time being friends with other pastors because we're all stressed. But they are mad. They just seem mad. And I'm not mad about anything. They're mad at their church. They're mad at COVID. They're mad at everything. And, and yeah, it's, it's a stressful job. There's a lot that goes with it. But I'm so optimistic. And this is such an incredible group of people. And I pinch myself that I get to do this. It's an honor. And it's, I'm excited about it. And Wilderness is a very young church in a couple of different ways. One, just by age. Our average age is like 27, if you factor in the kids' ministry. We're a very, very, very young church. Lots of kids, lots of young families. That's our MO. That's our sweet spot, which is an answer to prayer. I've got to officiate so many weddings in the last six years for so many incredible couples. We have so many babies showing up every week, baby announcements almost every week. It's the coolest thing ever. It's such an answer to prayer. It's awesome. So we're a young church in that way, but also we're just a baby ourselves. We're just seven years old, and so it's easy to lose perspective. It's easy to begin to think that our way of doing church is the only way, and it's just not. Wilderness has definitely beaten the odds over the last six years, but when you look back a little bit broader, take a step back from our situation, at 2,000 years of church history, it's really amazing, and this, this is true, and I want to spend some time on this this morning, that there is even still a thing called the church. It's amazing it's even still around. In fact, it is, whether you know it or not, one of history's greatest mysteries. When it comes to human history, nobody can really explain how Christianity is still a thing. They have no idea how it survived the first century, the um, direct attack from the Roman Empire, much less the 2,000 years after that. Nobody really knows how they pulled that off. And you need to think about the fact that the church or Christianity it was started as kind of a spin-off cult of Judaism. Jesus was Jewish, and so it was viewed initially as a spin-off of Judaism, and it started in the absolute armpit of the Roman Empire. Nobody wanted to live in Judea. If you got stationed to Judea, it's like if you're in the oil field and you spent some time in Pecos, you know what I mean, okay? It's not a place you wanted to be. It's not a place great things got going. That's just the reality of it. It's also the reality that the church's leader, Jesus himself, was rejected by his own people and crucified. 
So how in the world did this movement, the church, Christianity, survive and thrive in the face of the Roman Empire's very organized, very well-funded, violent resistance against it? They did everything they could to shut it down. How is it that the church would eventually be embraced by that very empire that for 300 years did everything they could to try to snuff it out? It's, it's a big question, and nobody really knows the answer. Talk about beating the odds. That's exactly what the church has done historically. And historians can't figure it out. I mean, they've kind of all arrived at the same conclusion. I'm a history nerd. There is a great British historian named Karen Armstrong. She's written a ton of great books. Uh, but she wrote a book called Field of Blood. It's religion and the history of violence. And this is a quote from that book. It it's kind of proves my point here. She says, against all odds, by the third century, Christianity had become a force to be reckoned with. Here's the big part. And we do not really understand how this came about. Still, still can't figure it out. Nobody can deny that it happened, that Christianity not only thrived or survived, but thrived. But nobody really has an explanation on how it happened. And we're not ever going to know how it came about unless we pay attention and take serious the eyewitness accounts from the men and women who were there and documented it for the world to read. And when we call those scriptures the Bible, it's amazing that the church exists, and it's really crazy that anything, any even facts about a guy named Jesus survived. What's even crazier than all of this to me is that Jesus himself predicted that this would happen. And it's a big deal. And there's this story in Matthew 16. Uh, Jesus is with his disciples, and they're traveling. They're north of Jerusalem, modern-day Syria area. They're on their way to Caesarea Philippi, and they're just, you know, shooting the bull. And he says, hey, who do people say that I am? He wants to know, what, what are they saying out there on the streets? What do people think about me? What's my reputation among all these people that we're traveling around to saying? And so his disciples were like, well, some people think you're a reincarnated prophet, that you're Elijah back from the dead, that you're John the Baptist back from the dead. He tells them all these things. He's like, cool, that's what they say. And then he asked the big question, who do you think that I am? And Peter, who I relate to a lot because he's talked way more than he thought, uh, he says, he replies with this profound answer. He says, you are the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting on. And even though we can't really explain this, we think you're the son of God. And Jesus smiled, and then he makes this statement, Matthew 16, 18. He says, on this rock, on that statement, on that belief that I am the anointed one, the Christ, the son of God, on that, I will build my church and the gates of hell, Hades, will not overcome it. Now, I should have crossed through that word church because I really hate that word church. I say I hate it all the time. Um, and the reason is it's not the right word. The right word is the word ecclesia. Ecclesia means assembly, congregation, gathering of people. Our word church, the English word church, it's the wrong word. It's not an English translation of the Greek term ecclesia. It's a German substitute that they shoved in there that means building or place of God. And I think it is really screwed up the way the entire English-speaking world looks at church and looks at this whole thing. It's a big mistake that we're all still dealing with today. The church is not a building. We, as a group of people, are the church. We own this building. We have this building. It's a great resource. But the building's not the church. The people are the church. Jesus wasn't talking about a facility that could withstand the gates of hell. That's not what he was talking about. He was talking about a movement from a group of people. 
Jesus is telling them that I'm going to start this movement and I'm going to start it with you and my death or your death isn't going to stop it. And they probably thought, really, us? You're going to start it with us? I mean, do you know what happens to people in the Roman Empire that try to start a new movement? And Jesus was very aware of what might happen, and it did happen, and that's the mystery of the whole thing. And those same guys that gathered around Jesus while they were walking to Caesarea Philippi, they would later document his death and point out that it was not the death of the movement. And the reason why it wasn't the death of the movement is because Jesus didn't do what every other dead person does. He didn't stay dead. He came back from the dead. His death was not the end of the movement. In fact, his death provided the opportunity for the movement to begin through his resurrection. And Jesus says, I'm going to build my ecclesia. I'm going to build a group of people, and nothing is going to stop it. And I am not a Bible prophecy expert. There's a ton of it in there. I've studied a lot about it. I'm rarely going to teach on it because I'm not sure what all of it means. But that one right there is my favorite Bible prophecy. That's it. That's my favorite one. We are the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus was predicting us 2,000 years later when he said that that day. That's a big deal. Jesus ushered in this upside-down kingdom that would guide the conscience and the kingdom the heart of the kingdom would guide the conscience of the nation and the world where people would look at the things we were doing, our good deeds, and then that would cause them to look to heaven and give glory to God for what we were doing. He turned all the religious systems upside down, and in the end, he laid down his life for his followers rather than demanding that they lay down their lives for him. And even more than that, and this is something that doesn't get talked about near enough, we give no historic recognition to this, Jesus laid the foundation for all of the modern assumptions that we take very, very seriously. Stuff regarding dignity, equality, freedom, liberty, safety. Jesus changed the historic narrative on how we think about all these things. How we view race and culture, how we treat women and children, the way that we view and serve the poor. Jesus was the first to declare that all of those people were precious to him. That was not a worldview until he came along. And then... Jesus asked his followers to do something completely unprecedented. He asked them to lay down their lives for each other. He said, that's going to be how everybody knows you belong to me. It's going to be how you love each other. You're called to love one another in practical and visible ways so the world takes notice. And then you're supposed to love your neighbors the way that I loved you in a selfless, sacrificial way. And you're supposed to love your enemies the way I have loved you too. This was a brand new kind of love, and it began to change the world right from the get-go, and the citizens of the Roman Empire began to internalize and embrace everything that was going on with what Jesus introduced. The Roman Empire began to change, and something unprecedented happened. And I'm going to quote a guy named Bart Ehrman. Bart is a very legit New Testament scholar. He's brilliant, and he's also an atheist, and he's written a lot of books. Some of those books tend to lean on the I'm angry at Christian side of things. Some of them are very educational. I've learned a lot from them, and I've read a bunch of them. But he wrote a book called The Triumph of Christianity. And he says Christianity not only took over an empire, it radically altered the lives of those living in it. It was a revolution that affected government practices, legislation, art, literature, music, philosophy. And on the even more fundamental level, the very understanding billions of people had about what it means to be human. So when Jesus unleashed this movement on the world, people began to believe that every man, woman, and child had inherent dignity 
because they were created by God. He goes on to say, how, who, however, however you interpret that, whether you believe in God, whether you don't, whether whatever you want to do with that information, however one evaluates the merits of the case, no one can deny it was the most monumental cultural transformation our world has ever seen. It's a big deal. And if you're a Christian and you're part of any church, you need to know that we are the stewards of that movement. We are the church. That the faith of our generation and the faith of the next generation, all those kids that are playing upstairs right now, it's, it's in our hands. We're the ones in charge now. And we have to decide, are we going to take what we want from it, consume it, leave it weaker, leave it sidelined, leave it ineffective? We can consume, we can disengage, or... We can engage with the mission of the local church and ensure that it continues to be the conscience of our nation and influences the conscience of the world. And there's a lot of examples. The most recent one's probably the Ukraine-Russia stuff, everything that's going over there, and it's tricky, and, you know, I don't know if there's a good guy and a bad guy. You know, there's hundreds of years of history, so much stuff that goes into that. But when you see a nation invade another sovereign nation and kill their people, just so they can take their land, there's pretty much something that rises up in everyone that goes, oh, that's not right. That's not good. It's not good just to go kill somebody and take their stuff because you want it. Well, who said it wasn't good? Because for most of human history, that's been the case. The strong just take whatever they want from the weak. The weak have to deal with it. That's just the way humanity has always been. So why is it that there's something in us that's like, you know what? That's not good. That's not good. I believe it's the reflection of the impact that the church and Christianity has had on the world. And in a lot of places, that impact has lessened, but there's still a remnant of those love one another teachings. And there's a sense of the things you ought to do and you ought not to do that come from the teachings of Jesus and becoming devoted to loving other people the way that Jesus did. And that sense of right and wrong that's instilled in humanity, I, I think it's still there in all of the places except for the ones where the church has never been able to take root or no longer does. And so the idea of dignity and human rights, it all comes from this movement that Jesus launched on the world that we call the church. So now, let's dial back in all that 2,000 years of stuff and get us back to Tyler, Texas, 2023. Do you know what the experts claim about the church right now in 2023? Here's what they would tell you. The church in America is dying. It's dying. Statistics have been looking like that for a while. Stuff's not going our way. This pandemic definitely sped it up. But do you know who gets to determine if that statement is true or not? Do you know who gets to determine if our kids and our grandchildren are going to have a church? We do. We get to decide that. We get to decide that. And so I'm going to put these statements on the screen that I believe and I think you know, but I want you to see it and I want you to visualize it and I want you to take it in because you are the church. You are the church. And you are our church and you are your church. It's you. The question is, are you going to step up to the plate and do something with that? Are we going to fulfill our divine mandate? Are we going to be good stewards of this extraordinary thing that's been passed down to us and that Jesus laid his life down for? I say yes. I'm in. But it's not going to happen without all of you. And if you're a part of the body of Christ, if you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus follower, I, you need to know I'm going to be real careful about like declaring God's will for your life. Okay, that's dangerous stuff. I don't know where God wants you to work or who God wants you to marry. I'm not ever going to claim to. Okay, be careful with that. But 
I'll throw this out there. I believe with 100% certainty that being involved in the life of a local church, an ecclesia, not a building, but a group of people, a gathering, an assembly of Jesus followers, that is God's will for your life. And the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to this really crazy, jacked-up church in Corinth. They probably, I'm, I'm wild that the letter survived. If I had been the church in Corinth, I'd have burned that dude as soon as I read it and came through. I didn't want any evidence of that. But 1 Corinthians 12 27, Paul gives us this analogy. It's a great analogy, and I want to carry it all the way out. He says, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So Paul is setting up this analogy saying that the church, this gathering of people, the ecclesia, is like a human body. And there's toes, and there's fingers, and there's hair, and there's eyeballs, and there's cellulite, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, but he says, all of you are part of a body, and you're a part. You're one of those things and then he keeps going, this is verses 15 and 16. It says, Now if the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong in the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. Now, this is a wild idea. I've, heard, I've read this verse a million times. I've taught this verse a million times. But as I read it this week, it kind of struck me a little bit different. One, because I realized that feet and ears... We're talking to each other. That's a wild analogy right there. But I started thinking, like, do body parts get the option of opting out of being a body part? I mean, eh, maybe. So here's what I did. I called my buddy Shane. My buddy Shane lost his leg about five years ago. He got in an accident. He got infected. It wouldn't heal. They gave him a bunch of antibiotics. It kept getting worse. Dude would not cooperate. He did not want to be a part of the body, so I had to cut that sucker off. All right? Cut it off. He only has one leg. So I touched base with him yesterday because he's my friend and I can ask him any kind of inappropriate question I want to. So I told him what I was doing. He already knows about these Bible verses. And so I asked him because I never had asked him and I just wanted to know. I said, hey, what happened to your leg after they cut it off? Like, do they just throw it in a dumpster? Do you take it home with you? What, what's protocol? I don't know. And he goes, well, I had to sign this release form and they like burned it. I mean, I guess they said cremated or whatever, but, like, that's how they do it. They had to sign a little form. And I was like, okay. I go, well, <laughs> I said, did you get to see it before they burned it? He goes, well, they didn't offer. They didn't offer to let me see it. I was definitely way out. He goes, but I did think about it before they cut it. I, I thought about asking, can I see it after you cut it off? But I also know that's something you can't unsee. And when I thought about the idea of me laying in a hospital bed with a nub and looking at my former leg on a stainless table beside me, that sounded gross. And so I didn't ask if I could do that, Travis. That's a dumb question. I was like, oh, you know, I just want to know. But here's, here's what I want to hammer down on. Think about that for a second. We all know that a disconnected body part is useless. Shane's leg is no longer doing him any good once it's no longer attached to the rest of him. But... How wild is it that that disconnected body part was viewed as gross by the body that it was supposed to be attached to? That's a wild idea, right? That's pretty crazy. And so if you take Paul's analogy of the church is a human body, we're all a part of it, plus my buddy Shane's amputee experience. I want to reread this verse, and I want to double down on something. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, you now are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Again, a disconnected body part is not a good thing. It's gross. And so here's what Paul is saying. 
Don't be gross. Be engaged. Be engaged. Act like you're part of the body because you are part of the body. And if you're grateful for the church and if you're grateful for your faith and you call yourself a Jesus follower but you're not engaged in the mission of the body, it's time to engage. This is the year to engage. I truly believe it's God's will for you. And no matter what season of life you're in, it's going to require a lot of intentionality on your part. It just is. It takes time. It takes shared experiences to build relationships. You're going to have to keep showing up. There's no easy relationship. There's no easy button to make good relationships. It's just not it. But what is at stake is too big for us to be content with just consuming something, just showing up, listening to something, and going home. And, and I get it. It's, it's easy to be a consumer. I'm well aware. I could stay home and watch YouTube. There's a lot of preachers on there better than me this morning. I get it. I get it. So I'm not going to beg you. I don't push on people. I don't pet people. And I'm probably not going to bring it up again. But this morning, I am inviting you not to attend something, to participate in something. And if you're not going to participate here, then leave Wilderness and find a church you can participate in. Tyler is full of great churches. I can give you some names. You need to get plugged in. It's the invitation of your lifetime. It's important. There is no greater investment of your time and of your life than in the local church. And when you flourish and when your church flourishes, the people and the communities around it do because the church has a very simple mission, and this is it, to inspire people to follow Jesus by engaging them in the life and mission of our local church. We want our kids to be involved in the life and mission of the local church. We want our middle school and high school students, our college students, to be engaged in the life and mission of the church. And we want to inspire people to follow Jesus. That's what you're invited to be a part of. And anyone who considers themselves part of the local body needs to engage with that local body. And so I'm going to talk about three ways really quick before we close. The first one is listen for come sit with me opportunities. Come sit with me opportunities. And Miss Teresa told me that I needed to use more visual aids. So we got a rope this morning. All right. I want you all to remember the three knots, the three knots. I'm going to tell you what they are. You can write them down and then I'll tell you when to use them. The first one is. You hear somebody say, I'm not in church, or I'm not real sure about faith. You know, I used to be in church. I grew up in church, but I hadn't really been connected to one for a long time. Or I've never been to church. In fact, I don't even know what church is, and I don't even know who Jesus is, and I'm not sure about any of that. When you hear that not, that's an opportunity. The second one is not going well in their life, right? They just got fired. They just found out their mom has cancer. Their car just got repoed. Something's not going well. Hey, you know what? You should come to church with me. You should come sit with me. The third one, the third not, is a situation in life that they are not ready for. They just moved to town, and they don't know anybody, right? They just had their first kid. We all know that's a big adjustment that nobody's ready for. Hey, you know what? We got a lot of babies at our church. You should come get connected to some of these families. Come sit with me. Here's the deal. The come sit with me part is a big one. So there's your three nots. Not in church, not sure about faith, not going well in their life, or there is a situation in their life that they are not ready for. When you hear these three knots, you have an opportunity to say, hey, why don't you come sit with me? Come sit with me. Don't say you should go see our church sometime. That's not going to work. In fact, if you invite them to come sit with me, they're probably not going to do that either, but then you get credit for inviting them, even whether they do it or not. Statistics say you got to invite somebody five times before they finally show up. But those are your opportunities. And if you listen for those knots, you're going to hear them every single day. 
You're going to hear them every single day because people need to be connected to other people. And the local church is God's way of doing that. So look for those opportunities to invite people in. But I want to say something real quick. One, you don't know what hangs in the balance. Many of you in this room got invited a dozen times before you finally came, and then you showed up, and you kept showing up, and God's done something great in your life. So extend that to somebody else. Number two, you can't invite people if you aren't coming. And we don't have an attendance policy. Everybody knows that here. There are lots of good reasons to not be at church on Sunday, right? Casey, if your cows get out, you have permission to go get them. They're not going to wait till church is out. you got to go get your cows, right? If you're going on a family vacation, we want you to do that. We know you're going to have to work some weekends. We know stuff's going to come up. People are going to get sick. And we don't think it's skipping church if you're planning a trip with your church friends. That's not skipping church. That's awesome stuff. But if you don't make it a priority to consistently be here when you can, you're not going to have anything to invite anybody to. So that's a big one, how to get engaged. Number two, find your group. This is the hardest one. There is no 100% clear path to this. Your goal to get involved in a church should not be to know everybody. That's impossible. I don't. I don't. We want you to have two or three people that you are truly in community with, people that know what's going on in your life. You know what's going on with your, their life. You can call. You can talk about anything. That's the goal, and that's hard. It's hard. Most people don't have that many friends. The number one epidemic in America today is male loneliness. It's a big deal. Most people don't have any friends. Two or three is a blessing. That's our goal. But you're going to have to show up. We're going to create all the opportunities we can, freedom weekends and lock-ins and Bible studies and check-ins and family camps. Come, but after that, you're going to have to take some intentional initiative to get cell phone numbers and invite people to your home and to plan things with them outside of Sunday mornings. You're not going to build relationships here. And there's so many opportunities for that. But you have to get connected and you have to stay engaged. And for some of you, and I want to throw this out there because I think there may be some of you in here. Maybe you've been going to a Bible study, you've come to a check-in, and you're like, you know what, I'm just, I've been doing this so long, I just don't even really get anything out of it anymore, and I'm kind of bored, and trust me, I get it, all right? There's probably not going to be a group Bible study that I go to that I'm going to hear something I had never heard before, okay? I get it. If that's where you're at, and maybe you want to dive deeper into some certain area of study, it may mean that it's time to lead, not leave, if you have this discontent in your heart and you say, you know what, this just kind of seems junior varsity, I'm ready for the next level, that might be a sign that it's time for you to step up and lead. We're always looking for new leaders. We would love to add more check-ins. We would love to do more events. And if you see a need that we aren't meeting, maybe you are getting being called by God to step in the gap and to lead in that area. We need people to lead, which leads to the next thing, volunteer. This is the last one. If you want to get engaged in the life of the church, you have to volunteer, and we need it in every area. And I know you're busy, but we built this church with busy people. We're all busy. And we would love your help in multiple areas of ministry, from children's, youth, men's, women's ministry, guest services, audio, video. And you're going to get an email this week that kind of tells you who to contact if you would like to serve in any of those areas. But do that. Plug in. That's where you're going to build relationships is serving alongside other people. So as we close, I just want to put it all on the table, be transparent, and let you know that I have a really good life. I turned 40 this year, so seven years of ministry as a church, turned 40, uh, it's, it's good. I'm not having a midlife crisis. I'm proud of what we put together. I'm optimistic about the future. Everything is good. I have everything I ever wanted out of life. I don't need anything. I don't want anything. I have nothing to prove. But at 40 years old, my heart is broken now more than any other time over a bunch of different things. One, over 
just the loss of influence that the church has in our culture. Nobody takes us here. We've been kind of diluted down to this little voting block, and every side of the aisle wants to pull us their direction, but we have no power, no legitimacy. It's not a good thing. My heart breaks over the disunity in the church. We're going to disagree. Disagreement is inevitable, but disunity is a choice, and it bothers me that we don't make the choice to unify under the banner of Jesus. My heart breaks big time. I'm going to spend most of February and March addressing this topic for my generation, millennials, that are currently deconstructing our faith. And the reason they're deconstructing their faith is because my generation got handed the faith that was really easy to deconstruct. I mean, I got told my whole life, you just need to do it because it's in the Bible. It's true because it's in the Bible. That's not enough for me. And you need to know that it's not true because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's true. The Bible didn't start Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus spurred on this enormous movement that created the Bible, okay? You need to know that. You need to know what that is. You need to have the context of that. And that breaks my heart that our generation got left out to dry on that thing. I've never been more serious about making sure that we leave the next generation a faith and a church worth having and worth preserving for my kids, for my grandkids, for your kids, and for your grandkids. I am more passionate about all these things than I ever have been because I truly believe we have more potential now than we ever have before. And for those of you for the last six years that have given sacrificially, you've generously served in every area through all the ups and downs of ministry and a global pandemic and everything else that we've seen in the last six years, thank you. I hope I say it enough. I'm not sure I do. Thank you. But if you're a Christian who's grown content with just being a consumer, and it's easy to do, it's an easy trap to fall into, it's time to re-engage and find your place in the body. So let's do it. Because against all odds, the church changed the entire world once, and there's still a lot of change that needs to happen. And so maybe by God's grace, we can be a small part of bringing about that change in our town, in our nation, and in our world and historically speaking, like I said, that the Jesus movement should have been buried right alongside Jesus. But the Apostle Paul, when he wrote his account, or the Apostle John, when he wrote his account, is talking about the movement of Christianity, and he said the darkness did not overcome it. So let's make sure that the darkness doesn't overcome it in our generation, in our community, in our nation, and on our watch. The church is worth it, and I don't think it's something we're going to regret. And I know you love, and I know you're grateful for your church, so let's decide to be the church. And the faith of this generation and the faith of the next generation depends on that. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for the church. I thank you for the ecclesia, for this movement that is built on people. The gathering of people who are called to love each other selflessly, sacrificially, just like Jesus loved us. Lord, I'm so thankful for this church. Thank you for putting this vision in our heart. Thank you for bringing the right people. Thank you for the lives that are changed, for the eternities that have been impacted, for babies that haven't been born yet, but that they're going to be born into a family that's serving you and is excited about what you're doing, is surrounded by healthy community and relationships. Lord, thank you for all that. I pray we continue to be that kind of church. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.